I think there needs to be a acceptance within the individual that different perspectives, whether you agree with them or not, are valuable. And that has to be a highly held attribute of who we are in this organisation. This is the strategy behind with Adam Cox, Yuta Tobias Mortlock and Matt Wilkinson. In this episode, we explore the strategy behind inclusion. What does it take to go beyond just diversity and truly unlock the mutual value that comes from organisations being truly inclusive? Today we're going to be talking about the strategy behind inclusion and in particularly in these times where everybody's working in more um, distributed teams, how can we build uh, structures and groups that are inclusive? Uh, if we start by looking at the definition of inclusion, it's the actual state of including individuals within groups or structures. So it's quite a simple definition. But actually, as we start looking at the at the various elements of inclusion, there's both the physical inclusion, inclusivity, as well as more emotional, cultural, and a whole host of dimensions that I'm sure we're going to unpack today. Uh, but first, I'd like to kick this over to Adam to, to gather some of his thoughts about structures, inclusivity, and how do they play a part in both success, failure, and... Um, uh, and maybe even the role of the water cooler in these as well. Wow. Big one. Um, <laughs> so, let's start with the easy questions first. I look at inclusion from a very a very tangible way that I see it happening, roll out in organizations, which is under the DNI banner. So let me just kind of start there and then we'll work our way through. Because diversity and inclusion departments, initiatives, I think over the last twenty years, they've done some very interesting work in relation to the diversity piece, easy to measure, easy to implement, easy to rally around, easy to observe. Inclusion, I think, has been a much larger challenge. What does it actually mean to be inclusive? So let's start with a commonality of terms and, and definitions. The way that I think about inclusion is very much one around a culture and environment of feeling a belonging to a group, to a collective. Because unless I have that feeling of being bought in, am I really included into the community, a job, whatever it happens to be? And one of the biggest challenges around inclusion, not even just kind of difference around terminology, but difference around achieving it, is that everyone who's involved in this has their own set of feelings. And it's difficult to quantify. It's difficult to get your hands around to go, well, do you really feel included in this discussion, for example? So how do business leaders, governments, societies really embrace inclusion is really where I want to go today. And from a framework perspective, at least from my world in corporate, I think one of the biggest challenges is that a lot of DNI is housed in, in human resources. And a lot of it, it is changing, but historically it's been driven by 
the box-ticking exercise of diversity, but inclusion still lacks. And if we look at what does it mean to be inclusive, a feeling of belonging to a culture and environment, that's, that, that's a pretty long bridge for leaders to make sure that they actually really practice what they preach. So that's, I'm going to come at, it at least for the start of the conversation from that perspective to really make sure that we can give good practical instruction in relation to how to pull this off because a lot of people are trying and I've seen a lot of people fail. Your turn. You know, I'm just, I really like your distinction between diversity and inclusion or, you know, because we're always talking about DNI, but striving for diversity is different um, to striving for inclusion. And the thing that's preoccupying my mind is um, why do we not include people that are different and how do we do it, right? So uh, that's at the core of what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about DNI and especially the inclusive, the inclusion part. And if we're if we want to talk about why do we not want to include people who are different, it's, it's quite, it's hardwired that we are inherently um, in group preferring and out group disliking people. It's hardwired effectively to be racist. It's hardwired to be discriminating. Um, But it's also hardwired for me to be greedy. It's hardwired for me to be selfish um, and that shouldn't stop me from moving towards you know, the better nature of my being. Or what did how did Lincoln say? Like work towards the bring the angels of our better nature out. Um, but perhaps it's useful to recognize that we are all finding it difficult to be inclusive. We're all quite quick to judge. We're all quite quick to dismiss and we're all quite quick to say this is what people are like or especially when they do things that we don't like to dismiss them and to exclude. So how can we turn this around? How can we turn this exclusion into inclusion? What's the path? Yeah. How do we need to move? I think the first thing to acknowledge that diversity without inclusion surely is a missed opportunity is to kind of look at the negative business case to go, okay, so if we aren't including different, you know, the the true benefit that comes from diversity is getting different perspectives and different angles of all, all the 360 perspectives of humanity. And, you know, that is an incredibly rich data set, knowledge set that can go into decision-making, understanding the world and working out what we, where we're going and why we're doing what we're doing and these sort of things. I think the, the inclusion component, to kind of riff on your point for a moment, Yuta, kind of comes back to morality. It's how do we see ourselves as inclusive people? And you know, being conscious in relation to the biases that we have, that if we're quite tribal in nature, we naturally calibrate to similarity, then we're trying to kind of break that structure. Um, well, that almost that bias, you know, that it's like a heuristic. It's a shortcut to say we need to strive for similarity. That's what's making our thinking smaller. Mm. If if we're you know we're inclined to simplify, we're inclined to say black, white, uh, one solution 
for the problem, we're effectively becoming less smart. So that's what we need to fight, don't we? We need to fight simplicity because the world is more complex and people, the complexity of people is what makes this world a good world. Yeah. And, And in addition to that, I was reading a piece of research maybe six months ago. I'm pretty sure it was HBR. And they were looking at understanding because inclusivity is this feeling of belonging. Um, how you know groups of people see their own behaviour as being inclusive, and they're saying that you know we've got some people of different uh, you know ethnic minorities or genders or sexual persuasions or whatever it happens to be, and we are a very inclusive group. And then they went to those people who were not the norm of the organisation, and they interviewed one gentleman who was Peruvian. And they said, okay, so you are a minority in this collective, but we, you know, the group embraces you. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. They go out of their way to embrace us. This is really good. He's like, okay, so how do you see yourself and your own career prospects here? He's like, I don't. This is a dead end for me. So even if you create the environment in which inclusive behavior can take place, the person who is the focus of that, if that should even be a construct, um, has to also throw his or her hat in the ring, or their hat in the ring, to to kind of, everyone, everyone has a wall to climb here in relation to kind of leaving baggage at the door or their own mor- their own biases at the door and get to a common point of morality that we're all equal. Mm. I think... I think one of the things that's going to that makes that even more difficult is if we look back at um, uh, one of those models of interpersonal relations called FIRO B. Um, that they, they people the model looks at uh, three key ways that people want to are looking to obtain from a relationship. So one is affection or openness, uh, another is control, and the final is inclusion. Um, uh, but inclusion isn't those aren't just measured on those three things of course there's the expressed behaviors and the wanted behaviors and i think it's very easy to uh, to sometimes believe that if i express a lot you know a lot of sentiment towards inclusion maybe i'm always reaching out to people bringing them in that i also want to be included the same way and and actually very often you find that there are greater expressions of inclusion than maybe a wanted or the other way around and probably actually very often the other way around and I think particularly one of the things that I believe was noted and this is a decade ago so you'll have to forgive my memory for for remembering was that it was a very British trait to express less than you wanted so we're kind of always taught coming back from the Victoria times stiff upper lip approach that we would be far less expressing of inclusion perhaps than we would be of actually so that people wouldn't necessarily think, oh, Matt would want to be included in this. And so I think sometimes that, that creates a real, um, a real challenge for people to see actually how much does, does somebody need, how much of that inclusion does somebody actually need? Mm. I'm, uh, Matt, forgive me for, for jumping in there because um, I've just been grading uh, some, some of these um, Cranfield MBA reports where they mentioned FIRO B um, and they were talking about you know personality assessments and also the group dynamics that these um, smart fantastic Cranfield MBA students have been going through 
And what was really striking was when um, that somebody wrote that this is all nice and good to assess personality preferences, personality tendencies, but actually the influence of the group over time eclipses even people's wants, needs, and people's tendencies. And we can literally create self-fulfilling prophecies about um, what, what we want or what we need from the world um, because of uh, the influence of environments. And what, what I mean by that is um, if we create a different environment, we can literally create different individuals' preferences, but it's the environment that, that has a, a big influence on people effectively saying, just like the Peruvian employee, I don't really have a big need to be included by this, this community here. I don't belong here. But is that really because genetically this person doesn't really want to be affiliated in the, the, the community uh, in that organization? Or is it because they've learned that it's actually not worth it to even try? And that's the influence of, of, of the context of the culture of decades, maybe hundreds of years of conditioning that say that somebody with darker skin or somebody who sounds and looks different is just not welcome here. And so I'm saying this also in response to what you're saying, Adam, here. Um, everybody needs to step up to the table. Inclusion is a two-way street. And I think we cannot underestimate the, the, the change that people experience when they have time and time again experienced that they're not part of the dominant culture, that they're not part of the, the narrative that, that people buy into. Um, before, um, before we were talking about, if you, if you Google face beauty, what comes up? It's the image of fair, you know, pale-skinned women. So that means women of darker skin color don't even have a seat at the table to be called beautiful and then maybe they don't want to even be in the game beauty is the least of our worries isn't it but actually excellence performing leading organizations fulfilling well, our potential that's the problem of lacking in inclusion isn't it just to just to, it's it's an interesting observation the sort of what does google think a beautiful face should look like and that that does that does build up over time of who's using Google, who's actually programming the algorithm, and there's a lot of um, a lot of gender bias, and I think also stereotypical bias that goes into the creation of some of these algorithms. And it's one of the key things around AI is if we're building out artificial intelligence or machine learning, are we making sure that they that the data sets that they learn from are inclusive and that do include the whole population. Otherwise, you create very, very niche applications and, and algorithms. Um, and I wonder if that isn't something similar to, to the, the challenge that we face as a, as, as a human being. You know, so if I, if I look at some of the, the challenges of inclusivity or being in, feeling included, you know, I think probably the, the best way is to take a, a scenario like going into a, a new classroom where you don't know anybody. If the group is already established, it's much harder to be included 
than if the group hasn't formed yet. Um, and I think that's one of the issues around that we're looking around culture is that uh, very often there will be a culture that, that exists within an organization and people join and leave those organizations and culture shifts over time. But there's a dominant narrative toward that, that sets that culture. Um, I think one of the, the, the hardest things to, to almost judge as you're joining any culture is actually understanding enough about the culture. Is it going to, to meet those expressed wants and desires that I have for inclusivity or for control or not? And so I think that that's, that's one of the biggest challenges around inclusivity is not necessarily making an, an inclusive culture because by their nature, culture is inclusive to those people that belong to it. It's, are you picking the right organisation to join that give you enough of it? I don't know. Yeah, it's it, it's almost this circumstance where an organisation has to be a, consciously a self evolving or self evolving organism that you know as it you know like a tumbleweed as it rolls through it picks up new stuff it changes it morphs it grows it shrinks it does things but it's moving and within you know particularly within corporate where you have this legacy at least mental legacy. And it's definitely changing in my lifetime. I've seen it change, but you know, middle-aged white three piece suit command control image that some organizations still are. And that they see that as identity. They see that as heritage. They see that as something to hold on to, but they know that there is a lot of value that they're not actually picking up by bringing other people in. So they open it up and then, you know, quite often it's met with relatively uh, justified skepticism. Why? And, and and that's the diversity bit. It's like, well, you're just getting me in here because I'm this versus what I'm actually chasing. So that commonality needs to be the goal, the objective. Now, whether that's culture, because we know it's good to have different perspectives and actually include people that aren't us into our thinking and our decision-making, or is it something much bigger that we can actually put out a common goal that irrespective of where you're from or your origin or your position in life, we all rally around that. You know, All contributors are, are deemed equal. I would like to... <clears throat> bring in unconscious bias here. Um, the problem with unconscious bias is that I'm not aware that I'm biased. I'm not conscious of it. Um, and culture means unconscious consensus or unwritten, un unarticulated consensus over the way we do things around here, the things we value around here, the people we think are promote worthy around here, the people that look right, the things that are rewarded, the things that are frowned upon, the things that are true, the things that are valuable. That's what culture is. It's, un, it's unarticulated. It's, it's consensus that makes life easy because everybody who's part of the culture buys into it and you don't even have to think about it. The problem with that is that you end up, even if you say I'm opening the doors to um, women, people of color, people of different sexual orientation, and they're not coming, but it's because they're smelling that the initiative to say we're opening the doors doesn't include role models, doesn't include uh, explicit support in career paths that are actually making it believable. And 
what what's a belief a belief is i actually believe to the fundamental core of my being that 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 you know a will cause b but if i don't believe that you know the initiative for people of color to apply for you know fast streamer program is actually really uh, rewarded or looks good in an organization and if i believe that it's actually it has a negative reputation we've seen this um, in many organizations where the the effectively affirmative action promoting programs are actually stigmatizing people they're putting labels on them and they're saying ah yeah she's part of that affirmative action type program so that questions her her intelligence even doubly um but it's, but can we can we just talk about why should we do this we should do this because even if we just think about racism, um, there still is this myth that people of dark skin color are inherently less smart than people of pink skin color. And this is still, this is still going on today. That, that, and it's been debunked um, systematically for over 50 years. Like in the, um, but it's, there's, there's a systematic problem that, for example, if you say IQ, IQ was created in the 1920s based on the culture of white people in white communities performing well. But since the 50s, people, uh, scholars who've tracked the IQ levels of black Americans and white Americans, um, black IQ has, has increased dramatically compared to the increases in IQ of white individuals. And that's not a genetic thing it cannot the genes don't change over 50 years but thank god thank goodness the social environment of black people living in the u.s has changed so that what is now measured as iq is comparatively they are now smarter than white people because their environment has changed so we absolutely need to be more inclusive and we need to overcome our prejudice that it might actually not be worth it adam you wanted to speak for a while no, no, you're fine. Thank you. When leaders look at what is going on, I think there needs to be a psychological shift of how people view what inclusion actually delivers. I think there is this perception, I, I read it ages ago, there is a perception that what we're after is a melting pot and you are better off reframing away from the melting pot towards more of a mosaic which I, that's a really nice visual because if we're looking at it from a melting pot perspective, we're trying to boil everyone down to the commonality and you lose a lot of that identity. You lose a lot of that, you know, special source. It's lost in the source. Indi you, you lose individual contribution. And then as an individual, if I need to lean in and want to be included and I see, you know, my contribution being diluted, then why would I do it? So there needs to be a reframing of what is the benefit of being inclusive. And I think that kind of visual at least definitely helps uh, helps me frame it up. Your turn, yeah. And I've, I've just had this image when you were talking about mosaic as opposed to melting pot, because whenever you melt different colors together, they become this nasty grayish brown, which mm -hmm. is ugly. But when you have a look at a mosaic, it still has these beautiful bright colors still included. So that's a really lovely analogy. Um, the the business speak of that is there's value left on the table 
if I don't tap into um, black intelligence, if I don't tap into female intelligence, if I don't tap, uh, uh, tap into gay perspectives, um, I'm leaving value on the table that I'm not tapping into. So I, I'm, I'm not tapping into a color that could create a richer solution for a 21st century world where pandemics can come up within a, a few months and can shut a global economy down. I cannot afford to not look at the colors of the rainbow, literally, in some respect, mm. um, because I surely do not have all the knowledge, let alone experience, let alone education of the world mm. to tackle future problems. No, I, I agree. I think I think there's also when we look at the the inclusion, you know, there's there's, there's some of the ob more obvious dimensions of difference that we can look at. Uh, for me, one of the biggest challenges is that of thought. Um, is that of thought? So, 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 so you know, difference of opinion, difference of maybe capability. I, I had, I've had the, you know, I've had the pleasure of and the honour of working with some very, very intelligent, smart, dyslexic people, or people with dyslexia. Um, now, if you ask them to write an email and you're going to judge them on the the, the 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 accuracy of the spelling of an email they're never going to look like they're going to succeed right and yet you put them in front of people or you get them to be creative you get them to you puzzle solve with them and all of a sudden they're taking you know that that's i've had some fantastic people that have taken me places that we never thought we'd have been able to get to because there's a difference in approach and if and I think this is this this is the hardest thing. It's again, it comes back to what you're saying about IQ. It's almost the measures of success, intelligence. What does what does good look like? What does beautiful look like? And actually, it it doesn't really matter what it looks like as such. It's what is the end result. Um, mm. and, and I'm this may be a really bad way of saying it, but you know, I've 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 if, if we were to clearly specify you've got to be able to write with a specific amount of accuracy, with a specific amount of, you know, speed and not use specific tools to get to the, you know, a correct piece of text, you'd be missing out with people that would be amazing connectors, amazing problem solvers that think in completely different ways and that actually on many metrics would outperform anybody. But when you then put them through a traditional schooling system that measures them by how quickly can, you know how quickly how quickly can you write down and how accurately can you present the written word of course you're disadvantaging them um and so i think that we need to not just con you know we need to consider all of those levels of inclusivity and what and and look at how that brings just so many different flavors to that mosaic yeah Absolutely. It's interesting that if, if, we're, if, if we start looking at the observable characteristics of inclusion of, of DNI, uh, the first thing that comes to mind, this has been kicking around for a couple of years now, is that there's a consultancy called Autocon, uh, London-based, and they're opening, I believe they're opening uh, offices in other parts of the world. They only hire a talent bench of exclusively people on the autism spectrum, or as they call it, the neurodiverse. Neuro, it's neurodiversity. And Obviously, the performance, you know, you have big tech organizations who are like, we'll take them because, you know, one person who fits this this talent set is better than three flaws 
of our best coders to actually come in and you know knock this work out of the park and they have structures around the you know the organization to help people interact and overcome any of their challenges and you know it's it, it's a brilliant brilliant business and a business model and it's solving a real problem from multiple different perspectives however it's also incredibly easy to put on a pnl it's easy to observe the impact because if i go here is someone who is neurodiverse, who can run ring around my top 10 you know, developers in a fifth of the time, well, then I, I, I then clearly understand what is the problem I'm trying to solve. What about the inverse? What about the things you cannot see what you're trying to solve? But different perspectives bring value. It's the richness. It's, you know, the thousand, you know, the thousand paint strokes that make the picture. It's, it's the mosaic. It's these sort of things. How do we how do we actually get people to think that there is value in this? I'm thinking of a really brilliant piece of economics research that I came across, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, um, where, where, the, where these economists analyzed all conflicts over the last, you know, several hundred years that they could get their hands on, and they coded them. And then they analyzed what is the best strategy to fight zero-sum thinking. So what's the best strategy to fight this perspective that competition will, will be better than collaboration, that me outdoing you um, is the only strategy that I have because there's only, a, there's only a finite amount of resources, there's only a finite amount of solutions. And what they found, which, which is what I found so brilliant, in line with my ideology, of course, is that the model of um, tit for tat, like uh, I do this, you do that. Um, if you do something good, I will reward you. If you do something bad, I punish you. N nowhere nearly works as well as tit for tat plus one. Tit for tat plus one means mm, if you want to achieve really important things in this world, one act of generosity typically changes a whole culture and environment so that it becomes more productive and more collaborative and more performing not two acts not three acts but one act of generosity is enough to shift the quality of output upwards but it it requires somebody to be generous and they literally called it generosity so somebody had to go out of their way out of their traditional way of thinking out of their traditional modus operandi and be generous, extend an olive branch. And they, they demonstrated the value of this um, through quantitative statistical modeling. It was fascinating. And of course, for me, that means be generous. The world will be a better place. I, I agree. I think the only challenge with being generous and I, and I, and I, is that over time, when does generosity become the norm? Um, so, you know, if over time, let's just say that you're working in an organization and, you know, you've had a really good year. So you give a really big bonus to all your staff. You know, let's just say it was five years ago or so when John Lewis was, you know, all of its staff members was giving all of its staff members huge bonuses or whatever, because they were having some, you know, some really big success. I may be getting the time frame wrong. So please don't shoot me for, for that time frame. Anybody that's working at John Lewis or, um, 
but over time, uh, you know, the, the cycle goes up and down. Retail's going through a hard time right now. It would be really difficult to see that same generosity right now. But how quickly does generosity become something that you expect? Now, if if you've been working in an organization for 20 years and this these, you know, these 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 acts of generosity happen every three or four years, say, all of a sudden it's every now and again, you understand it's part of the business cycle. If you're there and it's the first Christmas time you've been you've worked through and a bonus comes through and it, you know, and maybe it happens again next year because it's part of the business cycle again, all of a sudden you start to think it's the norm. And so I think that there's this, uh, there is a real uh, challenge in making sure that you show that generosity is being ge- is, is, is being generous and not just part of the business cycle. I find that really interesting because for me, generosity is not just financial and not just related to bonuses at all. And I wanted to actually talk about inclusion as a negotiation anyway. And I wanted to almost bring the negotiation kind of literature into this discussion. And if we're thinking about negotiation as a, you know, tit for tat, um, Mm. I'm trying to win my argument, you know, I'm trying to outdo you, then we're really outdated and we're not, we're leaving a lot of value on the table. But if we're thinking about negotiation being largely about emotions, which is what the Harvard Negotiation Project now talks about Mm. virtually exclusively, um, appreciation or generosity is a lot about, yeah, appreciation. people's need for affiliation, people's need for autonomy being balanced. And that is all much less tangible than a bonus. And and when we're saying, if, like imagine through acts of generosity, we create a culture where generosity becomes the norm. Then to me, that looks like an organization full of people who are organizational citizens. That means they they care about the organization emotionally and they are committed. Which means if, like, just like in a family, if there's less money in the pot, nobody in there, no family member in their right minds would try to go on a skiing holiday to St. Moritz because we know it doesn't make sense. But we can still be generous in different ways by being appreciative, by satisfying each other's needs for affiliation, by satisfying each other's needs for autonomy. And that's how the Harvard Negotiation Project talks about negotiation and what the real focus of a negotiation should be. And I think that's the game of inclusion as well. Yeah. Yeah. I love this concept of inclusion. I'm tying it very strongly to a phrase you just use, organizational citizen. Like it's it's it, it kind of comes into this identity that irrespective of whether I'm getting a bonus this Christmas or not, and then am I anchoring my expectation that this will happen every Christmas? I think there is a degree of a, a way to kind of manage that. Like that's one degree of of that generosity or it's one aspect of that generosity to kind of lev- level that playing field out so it doesn't become that expectation. You'd have to bring authenticity and transparency. Yeah, I'm just smiling because I'm I'm just now um, thinking about all these things that um, Dan Shapiro, who, who in, in in the Harvard Negotiation Project, talks about how to make negotiations successful, and um, the primary predictor of marriage longevity is appreciation, and it's the same it's the same in um, in organizations, and so all this stuff does translate to non-romantic relationships. So we know 
through reams and reams of research that monetary compensation is not deemed anywhere near as valuable over time by employees as emotional compensation, as appreciation, as mm. allowing people to work from home, giving them autonomy, uh, giving them power, empowering people. And guys, we need to talk about empowerment when we're talking about inclusion as well. Yeah. Because that's a really important part of the diversity and inclusion bit. It's about helping people feel empowered so that we don't have to be in power all the time. We need to help leaders understand and, and almost relax into the fact that it's actually, it's more productive to not need to be in charge of everybody. And it's more productive to empower anybody who works for us, yeah. especially the, the disenfranchised. Because my work as a leader becomes less onerous when I don't have to provide all the answers. And when I can rely on my employees, like my family members, to have my back and to step up when I need to, when I'm weak, when I'm sick, as it were. I'm using the family model as, a, mm. as an image of an organization that works, where organically <laughs> um, people step up when they need to. This is what's happening with my teenage children. We are, we are at home a little bit struggling between empowerment and, and keeping our children kind of you know, safe and comfortable we've had this big delivery of ikea goods and we thought we can't let these girls teenage girls put all these ikea tables together by themselves and then they started and you know and they felt great being empowered doing putting ikea tables together they're getting ready for you know living by themselves but it's 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 relaxing for leaders to have empowered employees and how do we make that happen <laughs> We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Strategy Behind. we make that happen and it's precisely the thread i'm also about to pull as pull also this concept of emotional compensation i i wish to know more <laughs> how is this measured i don't mean a simple 360 performance feeling warm and fuzzy because large organizations who really want to go in a direction of really putting inclusivity at the center of their people strategy, at the center of how they think about growth or whatever it is they're trying to achieve? Well, I think there's, there's a really interesting study that was, con I believe it was conducted by Dan Arley, who's a behavioral economic, economist. And they, uh, he did a study where they were looking at people that were uh, parents that were taking their kids to childcare. And People that were coming home, coming to pick them up, there was this sort of, un there was this written rule that said, you know, you need to be there at, shall we say, 5 p.m. every day at the end of the day or 5.30, whatever it was, to give people time to finish their jobs, get there and pick up the kids. They then, they found that there were a few people that were 
finding it hard to make that that cutoff time. And so they decided that rather than trust to people's goodwill, they would charge um, a, a fee for how long extra it took. Rather than that fee being felt of as a punishment, because people are already paying for the amount of time that the kids are the, at this childcare, it became more considered, or psychologically, it became part of a payment for time. So even though there may only be one or two children left in the daycare, so in, in the childcare centre, they were then being made to, you know, being, you know, essentially made to work for a lot longer for a very small amount of money. What's really interesting then is when that contract of faith was broken and it turned to a monetary one, they couldn't undo that. So the behaviors didn't return to normal because the people that had already said, well, you're paying, you know, we're going to pay extra, but your time is money. That, that, that then, um, you know, that, that, that contract of we leave at this time had been broken. So they, they never managed to return to that. I think it also looks at that when if you give somebody a, a gift or if you're, you know, if you do somebody a favor, almost the worst thing you can do is then receive a check. If you give them a thoughtful gift, whether it's a, a bottle of wine you like or, a, you know, some small gift that you, something that we know that you'll enjoy, you know, whether it's a, you know, a meal out, whatever it is, something that shows that you've thought about what somebody likes and cares about, that's really important to them. Um, I, I think where I struggle with this is then in an organisation when we're talking about how can an organisation give somebody what they're looking for emotionally and keeping that contract because there is that contract that says the, the contract you sign is financial it has a, a, a significant financial element where you're paying your time there are amounts of um uh, shall we say benefits that are non-purely financial and then there is the rest of the contract which i believe is earned over time rightly or wrongly and so that is then earned by the relationship that's created between management and or leadership and and the employees and through the culture itself. And that's kind of created, co-created together. Um, and I kind of have a challenge in this, in, especially in bigger organizations, because really, realistically, you, people don't leave organizations, they leave managers. And so you're not really creating, it's, it's not an organizational inclusivity thing. It's a manager inclusivity. And if you can't be inclusive of your team, you lose them. Yeah, I I hear you. I like um, that you're reminding us, Matt, that people don't leave organizations, they leave managers. I do think everybody's influenced by the organizational backdrop. Um, but there's agency, there's, you know, there's responsibility of managers. But I have a bit of a I have a bit of a soft spot for especially middle managers who who are getting it from both sides, who have to meet the, the numbers, the targets, but who also are at the cold face of the the dissatisfaction of um, increasingly woke, increasingly aware employees, right? Who are who are rightly demanding diversity, flexibility, autonomy, right? Um, I just somehow think, uh, guys, we. I will almost want to backtrack a little bit more to saying, how do we, you know, compensate, um, evaluate, measure inclusion and, and um, say, like, what's the, the motivate, motivation for people to, uh, to be included? 
because I had this image in my head of um, us being, you know, a large corporation established, still hanging on here, being doing okay, and needing to include um, and recruit and retain uh, from more of a diverse pool of of people that are out there. Um, why should they join me? Why should I? You know, why should? How should I be attractive? Because the image is, um, I think, an image of almost getting people to trust that it's safe to be in this organization that now says, I, need, I want to, I need to, maybe, maybe there's a bit of a political agenda of a, you know, kind of a, a corporate, mm-hmm. you know, there's a poly- political angle to it. Um, how do we move towards each other? to get people to feel that they are welcome here, that there's respect, that there's dignity for people who look different, who might even wear a headscarf, you know? So how do we create organizations that are more welcoming? I think there needs to be a acceptance within the individual that different perspectives, whether you agree with them or not, are valuable. And that has to be a highly held. I think there needs to be a acceptance within the individual that different perspectives, whether you agree with them or not, are valuable. And that has to be a highly held attribute of who we are in this organization. Held attribute of who we are in this organization. I have people, friends on social media who talk absolute rubbish politically. And there is no way I'm going to unfriend them because I actually want to hear what they have to say. Oh, yeah. It's the value in that opinion in which is foreign, alien, something different. Because isn't that like mental growth, understanding different perspectives, particularly from a strategist? I want to hear something that's diametrically opposed to the way I'm thinking or seeing things, something. That to me is incredibly rich and it's valuable. And so what, what am I actually doing? I'm kind of leaving my own opinion of myself at the door and I'm going in to, as I know you said in a prior episode, what does it be inquisitive without judgment? It's this... It's, it's, it's without judgment is the key here because another piece of research I read a good couple of years ago talked about the phenomena very much driven by diversity where, okay, we get people who are in a minority group to the collective of the organization. We promote them up through a diversity. They go up into leadership and then he or she or they get the opportunity to make their own decision about who they sponsor to go up and they feel a moral obligation that they must also support this people of their own same ethnicity, persuasion, whatever. And then you kind of, what, so what's really happening here? Are we just kind of perpetuating the same challenge, but now it's in a micro version because it's not the majority, it's a minority. And it's, and again, it's this leaving yourself at the door for something greater and it's, I don't have a moral obligation to put a white Australian man in behind me. I have a moral obligation to be inquisitive without judgment. And if inclusion is inquisitive without judgment and we learn something from someone because they're coming from somewhere different, 
that is valuable into itself. And then if we lead with that generosity, that, um, that, uh, um, emotional compensation, but you're right, Yuta, not from the top of the organization, but from a managerial, from colleagues, then, you know, the whole psychological safety thing starts to rope into it and we're creating a warm environment where ultimately I think we're leading with respect. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, I, I also think it's, uh, and Matt, I think you've absolutely put us on the right track here. Um, it's the real, co- you know, the day-to-day conversations that make the difference here. Not the, sorry, Adam, not the corporate strategy. Probably in reality, it's the conversations between middle managers and, and people in the hierarchy that will make the organization inclusive or not, not right? Um, I think we should talk about appreciative inquiry and, uh, the you know the the big uh, you remember that maybe from Frankfurt, the ask tell matrix remember that you know the kind of if you have like an axis that says you you tell and you ask or whichever one is on on one side and then you ask why and you ask how where we should be is in the asking and in the how quadrant not in the telling and then or uh, or in, in investigating or uh, drilling uh, quizzing somebody over why are they doing something. And appreciative inquiry is a really good way of, you know, unearthing goodness that's seeping in the corners. And that's kind of, you know, like underneath the cushions, as it were, to actually, you know, discover where we've got value. And Adam, I liked your word value as well. What what we want to do from a corporate perspective is we want to explore and see where the untapped value is, right? Unexplored value generation. And so appreciative inquiry um, is a really useful way to generate goodness um, in a non-critical, in a non-judgmental way. Uh, it has, I think it's, it's got the SOAR acronym. Do you remember the, the SOAR? What is it? Strengths, opportunities, A, what is it? Could A be action and could it, you know, um, no, it's aspirations. The results from SOAR, so the process, David Cooper started it in the the Weatherhead School of Management in in the US uh, in the 80s. And uh, appreciative inquiry has become really popular with global organizations and um, the UN Global 500 compound basically started to tackle world issues by using not problem solving, not brainstorming, but um, what they call an appreciative inquiry or inquiry. How, do I, how am I supposed to pronounce this? Inquiry? It'll be inquiry in, inquiry. in England, inquiry oh, in, okay. uh, in the US. Right, inquiry, right? And so they're starting by saying, S, what are our strengths? O, what are opportunities? That's, that's great. But then A is, what are our aspirations? And that's, Adam, where it comes into identity. Mm. Who do we want to be? And they are only starting to explore results once they've absolutely finitely finished talking about strengths opportunity aspirations and then we're going to measurement and now we're coming back to what what we've been talking about a little while ago right how do we measure the value of inclusivity Mm. let's do some exploration and let's tame those wild horses for me people to be included are a bit like wild horses. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, so they're like wild. They're not going to come anywhere close to you because they hear all the stories of discrimination and of, you know, somebody who's get their hand bitten off when they're starting to try to trust that inclusion is right. So we need to tame 
distrusting and they have every right to be distrustful of us you know pale skinned folk mm. by appreciating by you know discovering i think there's um, appreciative inquiry has several other uh, um acronyms that we should look it up so it's about dreaming discovering um you know, designing solution, but it's all about, um, it's big in positive psychology, but it, it leaves evaluation out of the door for the time being. Got it. So what would, so what's happening here? When I look at, look at what is the, what is the thing we're actually solving is we're kind of, we're solving for respect, not for recognition. We're, we're going after something that is much more moral, correct base. Yeah, again, like, lots of fingers rubbing together. It's like, it's this thing, you know, easy to understand or easy to see in your mind, but very difficult to articulate. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's interesting to look at maybe some examples where you can't see inclusive, you know, this sort of inclusivity appearing. Because I think that that then could maybe switch into examples of, of the, the sort of thinking that that people need to adopt. Um, you know, as I, as people have been talking, I've been I've been drawn to the the model of the essentially the the, the trend that was was stack ranking uh, people on performance metrics. Um, you know, so you take your staff and you measure them against, I don't know, three or four different metrics, and you rank them top to bottom in the organization. You take the bottom ten percent and you fire them. Um, you look at that sort of model and that can't possibly be inclusive because you're measuring on a very, very short time frame. And I think that the, the success or failure of that on the short term, yeah, absolutely, you get a very, very highly um, efficient, probably quite scared workforce. So they work to a certain level of performance and you're going to get consistent. They're always going to be competing against each other they're always going to be performing at a very high individual level. But what they're not going to be doing is necessarily performing at a at the maximum collaborative level um, and on a longer term goal. So you'll be, you know, if you're thinking quarter to quarter to quarter, this is what we've got to deliver. The, you know, these are the key things that are important and kind of, you know, living by the share price and the street, you know, the street analysis of you. Uh, building in inclusivity, I think, is much harder than if you've got a longer term time frame when you're looking at, you know, measures of success as to not just can I employ somebody, you know, can, what does my team, what is my team doing now? But actually, how likely is it going to be for me to be able to fill a role in three years time? And I think those are two very different measures of success. Now, I'm not saying that inclusivity won't deliver value. I think that's absolutely, you know, it absolutely will because you'll be you'll be able to approach problem solving from multiple directions. But I think a lot of it looks at time frame and what's important to the organization. So I my guess is and my, my, my supposition is that those organizations that work quarter to quarter, live by the street, are going to be far less likely to have a really inclusive culture, even if they hit the diversity targets, than organizations that look like a, a longer term, uh, look at a longer term time horizon. Yeah, you, you've touched on something there. I think the way that you framed it up, absolutely true. It's very much a story about a one way system. You are inclusive 
I want to hear your ideas that contribute to this. However, I'm not prepared to listen to your needs. Ooh, yes, that, I'm holding. I'm not prepared to listen. Yes, keep on going, Adam. No, no, no. It's, it's just, it's, it's this. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's this one way. There's no loop. There's no it's loop. It's not ask. It's tell. And Matt, I think what you've just said um, it, it comes back to the stuff that you're so good at and the stuff about communication and the magic of storytelling. We need for organizations and for leaders to suspend their disbelief in the value of this and to suspend their fear that they need to have quarterly results planned for. They need to have a plan in action in six months time. And that need, that need to, for, you know, hitting the targets, it precludes this asking mindset. It moves towards a telling framework. It moves towards, you know, the ask tell matrix. It moves into this, why did you not do this? Rather than how can we do that? It moves into me telling you that in the next six months I need to do this rather than asking you what futures we can create. And, and I, I just keep coming back to Dan Shapiro and uh, he did this brilliant presentation, um, uh, Harvard Negotiation Project uh, presentation about emotions and negotiations. And he kept talking about um, romantic relationships. It's not just me and my uh, marital relationship that I bring into this conversation, but it is, he said, it is so dangerous to assume that you understand you know when we're talking about mm. understanding other people like so mm. you're you know you're you need to appreciate somebody or you and and so many people say i understand where you're coming from but when the other person doesn't completely trust that you understand where you where you're coming from you hate when they say i understand so it's really dangerous to assume you know what's going on for your employees. You know what's going on for the next three months because you don't. And his big advice to all negotiators in this world, top, middle, and bottom, and the Harvard Negotiation Project is the top institution to teach people how to negotiate, is to ask for advice. So his advice is that you be need to become an advice seeker, not an advice giver. And... Matt, we need a story that helps people settle into that, the inherent uncertainty of what it means to ask people below you in the hierarchy to so, help you co-create your future. So it's just, just your luck that I have one. So I had, um, I had the great pleasure of working with a, an amazing sales director um, uh, in, a, in a previous role of mine. He, you know, I didn't report into him. Um, the organization would set annual targets for each of the sales regions. But the way he would operate is that he would always um, ask his team to build from the bottom up what the forecast was. So you'd have a target and a forecast. Now, his region may not have always met target, but they always hit forecast bang on the nail. And what organization wants anything better than that to them to be able to say okay here's our target this is what we're going to set that's that's what we're going to aim for that's fine when we look at forecast that's your that's your forecasted cash flow that's your, that's the money that you can count on being there so that you know how much you can you can afford to invest how much you need to save to pay payroll how much is there to cover the overheads and quarter in quarter out he hit that forecast 
it, it, it was it was uncanny it, and there was no manipulation it wasn't playing games it was just he knew he built the team he, his team trusted him that they said okay this is what I believe is going to happen and that you know and and he would put forward a realistic forecast he wasn't willing to 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 move with the flash pressure to move the forecast towards the target he was willing to say there's a gap this is why there's a gap but this is what you can count on us to deliver and that was, I think that was the, one of the best lessons I learned anywhere was this is what you can count on us to deliver. And quarter in, quarter out, he would deliver straight to that forecast. And what was amazing was, was that, yes, people would do, you know, they go above target, they go below target. But actually, if you can hit what you can forecast, that I think that's a real skill. If you then look at the, at the, um, if you then go and look at what the stock market's really looking for, it's believable prediction of the future. Um, now, I know it's a short-term goal, um, and we're still looking at that, you know, at sort of three, six, nine, 12 months out, and things can happen. But I've seen share prices be negatively impacted by companies doing better than they forecast, just as much as they have by, by underperforming. So the ability to forecast and understand essentially the environment that you work in and the environment that your teams are working in is more important than actually, oh, can we do better than that? Can we actually hit a bigger number? So it's it's almost the street rewards you for being a trustworthy um, arbiter of their investment. And I think that's that, that for me is a, is a crucial crucial piece of the puzzle is that if we're going to look at why should you be inclusive and therefore include somebody's opinion in what you're going to take forward? It's the fact that even your owners, you know, in the shit and the stock market value the fact that you you're listening all the way through that chain. Mm-hmm. I absolutely adore what you've just said, Matt, because I am taking away from that, that actually deliberately shifting our attention away from the stuff that we can't control and that we're afraid of that we are, you know, we're because we don't know what's what the numbers really mean in the future. I can deliberately shift my focus towards what did you say? This is what you can count on us to deliver. Hmm. And this could be quantitative, but this could also be qualitative. And I actually, I am, I have a big, um, request for us and for anybody who's listening that we move away from a world that seems to think that it can represent reality in numbers and in figures and in you know like like spreadsheets because it can't but actually Matt what you've just said is we can focus on what somebody else can count on and it could be my willingness it could be my dedicating it could be my enthusiasm my exuberance you know, people can rely on me being exuberant about this. And that is something of value, even though we might not be able to put it into a spreadsheet, but it's true and it's real. So I'm taking two things away from this. Helping leaders shift even the stories that they tell towards what they can be counted on in terms of trustworthiness, in terms of openness, in terms of willingness to look for innovative solutions is great and moving away from trying to put into a little box 
of quantitative numbers and deliverable targets, what is inherently not a world that we can put onto a spreadsheet anymore. Mm, mm. This is fascinating. The story you gave, Matt, is absolutely perfect because what it is is that it shows a quantifiable, to your point, which I'm about to scoop through to, it's a quantifiable representation of inclusion, which is consistency, dependability, trust, respect. Like, you know, I'm not going to make your target, but you need to respect the forecast, even though there's a delta between them. I'm interested in measuring what's happening in the individual. And this is a challenge. I'm going to flip this for a moment. Is that, you know, if ultimately being included is an emotion, it's a feeling, it's a sense of being, what is the danger in that? Like I just, you know, like Tom York said, just because you feel it doesn't mean it's there. It's, it's that it's, if I feel something, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. So under what circumstance can this be manipulated? Can this be manufactured artificially to come off that, wow, I'm really included, but something, you know, is there a break in this chain where it'll all fall apart? I'm, I'm just trying to see is is this approach rock solid? Can inclusion be, you know, uh, what's the word? I think can, can inclusion be, yeah. Can, yeah. Can, yeah. Can inclusion be misconstrued and, and yeah. And, in the and short term, yes. Faked. In the short term, yes. In the long term, no. Because inclusion has to be authentic. You don't feel that. You don't feel included if you're, it's not authentic. Inclusion involves being listened to. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you your opinion will always be the one that leads through to the end. But certainly, if there's something that you say, I cannot do, we cannot deliver this in this time frame, whatever it is. And if that is just, if the answer is, we'll make it happen. And you're not given any help to make that thing happen then that doesn't, that's not a reality. That's not being included. That's just having a conversation and being told. So it's not about being included in the meeting. It's not just having your, um, your point of view heard or listened to, or at least being uh, given the space to express yourself. It's about there being some active listening, being some, and then some people willing to hear the reality, your reality, and then move from, a point of view of but this is what we're trying to achieve to right this is how we as a group are going to get there even if that means that we have to move time cost quality whatever other metric it is understanding that things have to have to be flexible based on what's heard i love that um and i would like to repeat myself by saying uh, uh, the word authentic i think is the key word here matt uh, that, you know, over even the medium term, inclus- inclusion will be found out, whether it's phony or not. And if it's authentic, people will, will relax into it. And I'd like to, re- like, the, the one saying that I really like about authenticity, uh, I think that Adam Grant said, it's not the same as self-disclosure. You do not have to disclose everything that is going on for you, but you have to be authentic. And and share as much as is necessary 
to at least, as you say, Matt, uh, to to get people to understand that they have to be flexible. You have to be flexible, and you have several choices. You don't know yet which is the right approach. Hell, doesn't that sound like reality for most of us, that we don't always know exactly um, which way we need to go, that we're sometimes a bit lost, that we're sometimes still making up our mind. Um, and I think this is what leadership development should should actually be about. We're, when we're, uh, we're teaching um, at Cranfield, we, we teach these uh, large groups of senior executives how to become better leaders. And quite often, somebody falls into the trap of when somebody asks them a question of saying, you know, can you deliver this? Um, what are you going to do about that? It's incredibly easy to fall into the trap of, of saying, oh, I might do this, of answering, rather than becoming the strategic Adam advisor that says that might be the wrong question to ask at this point, um, rather than uh, delivering what you asked me to do Let's just explore what the better way to look at this is. So that is authentic, but that's also flexible. I think that's a key word that we have to kind of make attractive to anybody who's listening. I like it. Absolutely. I think the big thing that I'm taking away from here is this concept of emotional compensation and kind of tailoring that into the respect piece, tailoring that into the willingness to listen and then kind of putting a bow of this organizational citizen kind of over on the top of it because it's yeah. Um, it's both. I think, I think sometimes you need to listen to the message that you're not asking for and because, you know, you know if, if you tell me what do you need and I haven't asked you what do you need, am I actually listening? So, yeah, asking with the intention to listen is a privilege that I can extend myself because I'm the person who signals to you, now I'm ready to listen to you. I think going beyond that and actually kind of listening to what is being said, irrespective of what your question or what answer you might be looking for. I think that's an important part of inclusion because sometimes when people are asked to your point, they'll give the lip service. They'll give the answer that's expected because there isn't that level of trust, that level of safety and that level of understanding that I'm really going to be listened to and understood versus uh, they're giving me my standard 10 minutes because I'm, I'm the minority here. Yeah. I'd like to raise one more point that I think is really important here. Um, in addition to listening to the perspectives of the, you know, the disenfranchised, the disempowered, we can do so much to empower people who are currently outside, you know, at the periphery of the table. And there's this, um, and this is all about uh, all in, in against the backdrop of the Me Too and the, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, there's a, brilliant um, initiative uh, called the Delancey Street Foundation that Mimi Silbert has founded in the 70s in San Francisco. It's based on this saying that originated in slavery. Um, it's each one teach one. So the disempowered and, and slaves were prevented from education and they were not you know, allowed to learn how to read. But whenever 
as slaves started to learn a new skill, it was their duty to teach one other person to become empowered. So Mimi Silbert um, in the 70s uh, and uh, co-founded this um, rehabilitation center for ex-convicts. And it's hugely successful. Uh, normally 500 ex-convicts uh, who are about, who've been in prison for about 12, 12 years, tattooed all over their, their bodies, drug, violent crime, gang crime, are in the center working rehabilitating with two psychologists and the rest is just people who have committed to being in this open not a prison but but a rehabilitation center working the real thing that over the decades has been shown to create the 98 percent success rate and the you know literally 15 20 000 people who've gone through this and no recidivism is that as soon as somebody enters this rehabilitation center, they become responsible a one week later for somebody who, who is weaker than them. And so they are becoming responsible to look after somebody else. They're empowered to help somebody else make decisions. They're also empowered to resolve conflicts regularly. They've got a, a specific structure in this institution where every whatever Tuesday, I don't know what it is, Every conflict, every problem that people have is addressed openly and publicly. So they're front-loading difficulty and they're learning how to manage themselves and manage living with other people um, effectively. And so for me, this shouts empowerment. And what I want to bring to the discussion about leadership and organizational development here is let's allow ourselves to be surprised at how much additional goodness can people bring to the table if we were to not just listen to them, but also empower them and give them responsibility? Because if I'm an ex-convict who's just been out of prison for a week and you put me in charge of somebody who's you know, even more damaged than me, what Mimi Silbert is finding is that people step up to the challenge and each one teach one to actually create value, Adam, well, you don't even know where the value is. Yeah, and this is this is music to my ears because when you look at the basis of economics, you're either a value creator or a value extractor. And what you've hit on is 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 bang on bang on is yeah you you've hit the nail on the head. I like it. Excellent, Matt. Final thoughts. Um, it's, that's a hard that's a hard summary to finish up on. Um, we could probably end it just there. But I'd, I'd like to come back to uh, just a phrase that, that I think Yutta mentioned earlier, which was appreciative inquiry. And for me, amongst everything we've said, the, the real feeling that not only are you being listened to, but your thoughts are being explored, even if they, if, even if they don't end up making part of the solution, you know, the final solution, I think the appreciative part of the inquiry is really important. And and for me that that is probably the biggest takeaway, is that yes you might have a different somebody might have a different opinion to me, they might have a different world view whatever it is but let's learn something from that because there may be a perspective in that that we haven't already considered, um, and that may be also just the offhand comment that somebody gives you as part of a meeting, dig into it lean in, and and appreciatively inquire about everything so that you can get as much information. Um, as possible about a solution which 
in in essence is then for me the the core of being uh, inclusive mm, absolutely i like it the strategy behind inclusion excellent and as per usual there will be more episodes to come and should you wish view in the past this is what you can count on i'll remember that phrase from that and i'll take it into the next one <laughs> <laughs> done adam cox is a trusted strategic advisor to leaders executives and organizations across the globe dr yuta tobias mortlock is a social psychologist who researches and advises on how to help people at work be and do well dr matt wilkinson is a marketing strategist and educator who helps life science and tech companies bring disruptive products and brands to market. If you're interested in the presenter's work or wish to sign up for their newsletters, go to thestrategybehind.com. Strategy Behind is an original podcast produced and engineered by Santiago Castello. Music is composed by Judson Lee. And to find more episodes, visit thestrategybehind.com forward slash podcast.